so thank you so much for coming this morning and particular thank you to Steve um, for coming and being with us this morning. I know that he's, um, the title we've given him is Leading Young People to Change the World because actually we don't want to just raise up a group of young people who do really well while they're in the youth work. We want to raise up a generation of world changers who go and affect um, their culture and the whole world for Jesus, don't we? That's what we're passionate about. Um, so, so excited to have Stephen with us. Um, I still remember him, you coming to New Day when we were um, at, in Newark and you talked about the train of God's Road filling the temple. And that has really stuck with me. Um, so I know that you're going to give us amazing truth. So can, together, can we welcome Steve, please? It is a huge privilege uh, to be able to be uh, addressing you this morning. Uh, I actually couldn't think of a group of people uh, that would be more exciting to uh, address on the final morning of New Day that you guys have been uh, serving and caring for people uh, the whole week. Uh, and instead of just taking the morning off, you've decided you actually want to invest further to become a better leader in order to serve the next generation, which I just think uh, is absolutely stunning. So thank you for everything that you're doing to invest in the next generation. It is absolutely critical uh, that uh, as churches we are committed to developing and empowering and investing in the next generation, and it simply wouldn't be possible uh, without men and women like you that are willing to volunteer your time and serve sacrificially uh, in order to uh, care for the next uh, generation. And uh, in my own life, I'm going to get to my testimony a little bit later, but I, I came to Christ when I was 16, and the youth leaders there were absolutely foundational uh, to my own spiritual uh, maturation, and I got involved in youth leadership uh, for a number of years, and it's something that uh, the church that we're part of uh, is really passionate about. So I hope and pray that um, this morning I can give you some encouragement. If you've got your Bibles, could you please uh, turn to Luke chapter 4? Luke chapter 4, and I want to begin reading at verse 14. Uh, we're speaking about youth that will change the world. It feels like quite an intimidating topic. It assumes that A, I have changed the world. B, I have trained young people to change the world. Uh, which both feel uh, inaccurate descriptions, but we do serve one who is committed to change in the world. So what I want to look at this morning is I want to look at uh, some uh, passages that are going to help us understand uh, the mandate of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, and the method of Jesus in terms of raising up world changes. Luke chapter 4, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news of him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in the synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now this is really a fascinating portion of scripture here. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus has been doing some miracles, he's been doing some powerful things, but here uh, in Luke chapter 4, he returns uh, to Galilee, to his hometown, to the group of people that would have been uh, least likely to believe exaggerated claims about him. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue and was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And Jesus looks carefully through that scroll, and then he finds a place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he returns the scroll and he sits down. And we might think that what's going on here is Jesus does the reading and then he's going to sit down and somebody else is going to do the talk. But the way it worked in synagogues uh, over 2,000 years ago was that Everybody stood for the reading of God's Word, and then the person that was going to speak on the text would then sit down while everybody else would remain standing to listen to the Word of God being expounded, how things have changed in 2,000 years, right? So what happens is Jesus gets the scroll, he finds the place where this particular portion of Scripture is read, he then reads the text and he sits down to explain the text And what Jesus does is he preaches the shortest sermon that has ever been preached in church history. His sermon is this, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Thank you, good night. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, you really wish that Jesus was back, right, to do one of these kind of sermons. Could could we have him back? Could, could, Could we have something as short as that? But if you ever study how to preach you'll know that actually what good preachers do is essentially they read the text and explain the text. They read the text and explain the text. But what Jesus does here in Luke chapter 4 is he reads the text and then he says, I am the text. He reads the text and then he says, I am the text. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So what is going down with this portion of scripture that Jesus says, this text is fulfilled in your hearing. This text defines the very mandate that I've come to bring. Well, this text in Isaiah is really the prophetic echo of what the Jubilee year is. The Jubilee year, which we find uh, in uh, Leviticus, explains an event that happened every 50th year. It was at the end of seven uh, sabbatical uh, years, which is every seven years, there was a Sabbath year, and at the end of a seven cycle of that, seven times seven, 49, in the 50th year, you would then have a year of Jubilee. And a year of Jubilee involved two significant things. The first thing that happened in a year of Jubilee is that debts were canceled, which is incredibly good news. And in fact, even a even in the world today, you'll hear about this, this jubilee idea. In fact, in the year 2000, they tried to, there was a movement that tried to uh, promote a jubilee year where debt would be cancelled uh, in the third world. So the, the big idea is firstly that debts would be cancelled. And like, who's the most excited when a jubilee year is announced? 
the person with the most debt, right? Like if you've got tons of debt, the idea that a jubilee year is announced and your credit card is cleared and your university fees are paid and your mortgage is paid and your, uh, your, your car payments are covered, this is incredibly good news. Like if you're like really loaded and got no debt, it's like jubilee, whatever, who cares, I'm not interested. But if you're in debt, if you're in trouble, the idea that all debts would be cancelled was incredibly good news. But the second thing that was involved in a jubilee year wasn't simply the cancellation of debts. It was about a restoration of God's purposes. You see, what happened when the people of God entered to the, in the promised land, they were allotted land. But the land wasn't just randomly allocated. No, pretty much like New Day, what happened was you had land where you were with your family and with your clan and with your tribe. You were with the people that were closest to you with your family. And the problem that happened for people that got into debt is at some point when you've, you're in so much debt, your only option to get out of debt is to do what? Is to sell your portion of land to somebody else. But when you sold your portion of land, you didn't just lose your land. You lost proximity to your family and to your clan and to your tribe. So it actually removed you out of relationship. And when you had sold your land and you had nothing left else to sell in order to pay back your debt, what did you need to do in those times? You had to sell yourself. You had to become a slave. Now, God had forbidden the people of God uh, to uh, buy slaves. And so if you were going to sell yourself, you didn't need to just sell yourself into slavery, but you needed to sell yourself into a foreign land. But on every jubilee year, God said not just that the debts needed to be cancelled, but those that had been sold into slavery needed to be bought back. And not simply bought out of slavery, but their land needed to be repurchased and they needed to be restored into the very relationships that God always intended them to be. So the two big ideas around this jubilee mandate was that your debt was cancelled and that you were restored to be the person that God always intended you to be. Why does this matter? This matters because when Jesus reads this grand jubilee mandate and then sits down to speak and says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, Jesus is saying nothing less than, I am the true jubilee. I am the one who has come to cancel debts. I am the one who has come to pay the penalty for your sin. We, we see that even where Jesus stops reading. If you know the section from Isaiah, you'll know that, look at verse 19, it says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And do you know what the next verse is? And the day of vengeance of our God. Why does Jesus stop reading there? Why does Jesus just share the good news to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor? Why doesn't he carry on reading and say, and to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God? Is, is Jesus like the first prosperity preacher that's just kind of, editing out the Bible to make it sound better than it really was? Do you know why Jesus stopped reading there? Jesus stopped reading there because he himself was going to experience the day of vengeance when he died on the cross. He experienced the day of vengeance so that we wouldn't experience the day of vengeance. He experienced the day of vengeance so that he could proclaim favor and grace and mercy. And at the very heart of Jesus Christ's mandate is to proclaim forgiveness of sin, is to cancel debts. But more than that, Jesus has come to restore people to be the people that they were, they were meant to be in the first place. All of us, in our own way, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
All of us have done wrong things. All of us have sinned, and that sin has distorted us. But Christ comes not simply to forgive our sin, but He comes to restore us to be the people that we were always meant to be. He comes to restore us into families and to clans and to tribes. And for His gospel, not just to wash us clean, but to restore us to become the people that we were always meant to be. And this is the very mandate of Jesus. Now, it's an incredible moment. I mean, I hope like they've got, I hope you can stream this when you get to heaven, like this moment. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. But the people that heard it were kind of like, that's, that's kind of all right. That's not too bad. Isn't that Joseph's boy? And they're not, they're, they don't really get it. They don't realize that this is a massive epoch moment. It's kind of like what's going down here in Luke 4 is like in Despicable Me. Remember when, when uh, Gru is kind of reflecting on his childhood and he, he does that drawing of the rocket and he shows his mom and she goes, ah. and, then he, and, and then he builds the little, uh, the little macaroni model uh, of the rocket and takes it to her and she looks at it and she just goes, ah. and then there's that moment where he goes, look, mom, the real rocket built for my macaroni prototype. And it goes, she kind of looks up and she's like has a, a, a slightest of moment of amazement and she goes, eh. and that's what goes down here in Luke 4. Jesus is saying, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing and they go, eh. but it doesn't stop Jesus. When we carry on reading the book of Luke, Jesus lives a perfect life. He dies a perfect death and then he's raised to life. And then in Luke 24, he gathers his disciples together and in chapter 24, And verse 46, well, 45 says, Then he opened up their minds that they could understand the Scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for for the forgiveness of sin will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are the witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you with my Father's promise, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So we get the mandate in Luke 4, and then we get the mission in Luke 24, which is Jesus saying, you are to go to the very ends of the earth, and you are to proclaim this message that I have come to forgive sin, that I've come to restore you to be the people that you meant to be, but you are to wait until you are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then we get the method. What is the method? The method we find in the book of Acts, which Luke, Dr. Luke wrote as well. And what we discover in the book of Acts is this, that they listen to Jesus. They don't shoot ahead. They wait until they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon them, empowers them, and then they go out. And what do they do? They preach the good news of Jesus, that Jesus has come to forgive sin. That if you would turn from your ways and turn to Christ, your sins can be forgiven. They pray for people to be empowered by the Spirit themselves. And then they connect people who have been forgiven and rescued and saved into a local community that they call the church, the called out, the ecclesia, the set apart for God. They establish leadership within that community and they instruct that community to go and do the same. And then they move on to a new area and they tell other people about the good news of Jesus. They call them to turn to Christ. They pray that they be filled with the Spirit. They establish a community. 
they establish leadership and then they move on and they go do it again and again and it's washed up on the British Isles and it's washed up in Cape Town, South Africa and there's a hardly a place in the world that you can go where the good news of Jesus Christ hasn't been proclaimed and a group of people that have personally come to experience that are gathered together in the name of Jesus with recognized leadership that is just happening all over the world. How do we change the world? We hear the mandate that Jesus has given us. We hear the mission that he's given us, and we follow the method that he's given us. Now, how did this play out for me personally? I was brought up in a non-Christian home, never went to a formal church service growing up, and then uh, one day a friend of mine at school that I played rugby with invited me to go on a youth camp, which we call summer camp, uh, which at that time was uh, a six-day event in the summer, much smaller than this, about 300 people. And without really giving it any thought, I just said yes. I don't really know why I said yes, but I said yes. And I can remember the first worship time uh, of that event. I I really kind of thought uh, I'd kind of entered the twilight zone. People were like clapping hands and lifting their hands. And it was just like I'd never experienced formal Christian worship, let, let alone exuberant worship. And I just thought... This is crazy. My one friend was kind of lifting his hands up, which I thought was very odd. I don't know why he would want to do that. And then I knew another guy that I played rugby with, and I was trying to look where he was, and I I couldn't really find him. And then I saw him. He was lying on the ground. He was surrendering himself afresh to Jesus. And I just like, this is balmy. And to be honest, if if, it had, if I had gone to that camp in 2018, I wouldn't have lasted a day because if I'd had a cell phone at the time, I would have got hold of my parents to say, get me out of here, evacuate, evacuate. But you didn't have those kind of things. And I was just kind of stuck there for six days. I'm just like, oh my word, what's going on? And uh, amazingly, on the second night of the camp, so all of the songs I knew, I don't, I don't really know any of the songs at all. And then uh, the second night, you kind of had to be with your group that you were in. So we were kind of sitting near the front and they were singing a song, you know, I Believe in Jesus. And they had, uh, they had actually sung that the night before. So this was actually the first time I could kind of sing along uh, with what was going on. And then this, this guy that I played rugby uh, against came up to me and said, do you believe what you're singing? And I thought, wow, that's kind of amazing. This is actually the first time I'm singing along. So I said, yes. And then he said, do you want to become a Christian? And I said, yes, but I didn't really, I mean, it could have been like, do you want Coke or Sprite? It wasn't like this deep revelation, and uh, these guys kind of prayed for me, and um, the next day, everybody was really enthusiastic about what I'd done, and I thought, I must have done something really important. People seem really happy about the decision I made. Uh, Two nights later on the camp, um, there was a real move of the Spirit, and God really touched my life powerfully. And actually, ready from that moment, I knew that I could never deny the reality that God existed because God had touched me in a personal and powerful way. Um, My next two years as a Christian was really, I was a little bit all over the place. I kind of had one foot in the world and one foot in the church because I hadn't been brought up in a a Christian home, the, the, uh, the kind of categories for being a Christian wasn't there. But what I did have was youth leaders 
who really loved me and committed to me, even though I was a little bit all over the shop. My parents got divorced soon after that summer camp, and I had a youth leader that my dad would drop me at church on Sunday night, and every Sunday night he would travel 20 minutes out of his way to drop me at home. And he just did that every single Sunday night. So I had a, I had a youth leaders that were committed to me even though I wasn't, uh, I didn't, I wasn't the good Christian boy. I didn't, I didn't fit the right categories. I was a bit over the place. I was quite opinionated. So when we did the kind of joining thing, I would always be asking questions and like, like, why is Steve asking so many questions? And part of my thing was, well, if I'm going to get into something, I need to really believe it. I'm not just going to take somebody else's word for it. And so I was that kid. And, um, and they just loved me through that. Then I got an opportunity uh, to serve and to get involved and to uh, uh, be a part of the youth leadership team until I actually started leading that team and then I started leading the student team and, and that began the journey of, of leadership that I've been on. And so what I want to encourage you with as youth leaders is how do we change the world? Well, we do the mandate of Jesus. We do the mission of Jesus. We do the method of Jesus. And all of that means is that we are front-footed in proclaiming the gospel. We believe in personal evangelism. We believe in personal conversion. The world will not change without lots and lots and lots of people coming to Christ, getting born again. We heard an incredible story from Adrian about the ripple effect of one person just reaching out and somebody getting saved and then them reaching out and then them reaching out and then them reaching out and it's only going to be in heaven till we find how far all of those ripples went from Sarah, who just decided to be the first domino to get, get the ball going. And we just need to pray. We need to be Sarahs, sharing the faith, and we need to pray that in our youth groups, that we see young people stepping out and being willing to share the gospel. And then when people get born again, you know, like if, when you get born, if, if, if you're a parent here, you know, it's like messy, it's noisy, it's chaos. It, it's very disruptive to your life, and that's what it's like when loads of people get born again. It's messy, it's, it's noisy, they don't get it, they say the wrong things, they poop at the wrong time, it, you know, it's just, it's, they wake up at the, you know, it's just, it's complete chaos. You're, you're, in, you're, you're in crisis mode for, uh, for two years at least, if you're lucky. And that's what it's like when people get born again. It's really messy. And the, and the worse that the culture gets, the messy it's going to be for us. And we've got to be able to embrace mess and be okay with mess. And then we need a disciple mess. And then we need to give believers opportunities before they're really ready for it. If I look back on my life, I just think I was given opportunities every step of the way before I was ready. If you're waiting for the kids to be perfect and all together before you give them an opportunity, you're never going to be able to give them an opportunity. You wouldn't be where you were today if somebody else didn't give you an opportunity to step out and trust God. The other thing was I grew up in a context where church really mattered. It wasn't about building the youth group, it was about building the church and it was about reproducing churches and we had a passion and a love for seeing the body of Christ being built up. And that is Jesus' method. Read the book of Acts. When Saul, who is going to arrest Christians and close down churches, when he's on the road to Damascus, he has that encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. And what does Jesus say to Saul as he's walking down the road to Damascus? Does he say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? 
an institution that I'm loosely affiliated with, along with other good organizations that do work in my name. Is that what Jesus said in Acts 9? Now, what did he say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To persecute the church is to persecute Jesus, and that's why when you read the epistles, Paul describes the church as the body of Christ, because he knows that Jesus himself said, hey, you persecuting the church is to persecute me. Jesus is completely identified with the church. Ephesians tells us that he's ruling and reigning for the church, and therefore what we want to cultivate Amongst the young people is a passion for the church. I want to take responsibility for the church. I want to see this local church grow and be as strong and healthy as it can be. And the greatest thing that could happen to me is I get called to go and plant another church and to reproduce it and to see individuals come to Christ and then gather in a community with recognized leadership and then we go on and do it again. That is how the world changes. That is the method by which Jesus has chosen to see his kingdom come. And he promises us that his glory is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So when we tap into Jesus and his grand mandate, Jesus is the true jubilee. And we do the very mission that he's called us to, which is to reproduce that across the face of the earth. And when we embrace his method, which is establishing churches, the world will change. And friends, that is not just fantasy. When you read the history of nations, you will see the massive changes that happen as a result of the church in incredible ways. I was in Holland a couple of years ago, and I was going into one of these old Reformed churches, massive things, and it's now kind of a museum. And I was just look, looking through the museum, and they, they, there's, there's a section there about John Calvin and the effect of John Calvin, great uh, reformer. But what I hadn't even noticed was how uh, Calvin's teaching actually produced a massive change in, in Western Europe in terms of uh, previously it was, you know, the, the king and then the subjects, but, but Calvin's preaching on the priesthood of all believers and that we're all made in the image of God actually massively affected the economy and the very outlook of Western Europe. And friends, when we put God first and when we preach the Bible, the ripple effects of this is absolutely massive. And I just want to encourage you, as you invest in young people, don't set your sights so low. Your, your, the mission and mandate that Jesus has given you is not just to entertain young people. You're just going to lose that battle. The world will win in the entertainment game. But you can give a mandate, you can give mission, you can give method, which will exhilarate us uh, and exhilarate the next generation. Amen. We have now got an opportunity uh, for some questions, um, just related to what I've spoken about. Unfortunately, I can't answer anything about share stocks or uh, sporting results uh, in this seminar, but if you come later, no, I'm joking. <laughs> Thank you so much, Stephen. Um, we're going to have some time for questions. I've got a few questions I'd like to pull out of you. Why don't you... Um just chat to someone next to you for a moment and say, okay, if you had the opportunity to ask a question, what question would you ask? And then you can text it in. If you haven't got your phones, I'm aware that so many people, their batteries are just dead and stuff. You just come and give me um, the question, like write it down or something, or uh, we'll get an opportunity for you to, to speak out. But two minutes, people next to you, what question kind of comes to mind out of what we've just heard? Okay, I've got a couple of questions that have come through, but please do be texting those in. Let's uh, 
really use this as an opportunity to get the most out of Stephen. Stephen's such a, a quality leader with so much experience. So it's um, even when just what you were going through there, I was thinking, oh, this is this is so rich in what we're getting. And some of the questions that I think have been coming up a lot through the week is um, the difference between having young people in a setting like New Day, where they they do get passionate and they get excited and they they get kind of all their teaching and the worship and all of that. And uh, a number of youth leaders um, are asking and saying, okay, how, how do we then take that back? And, and I can see my young people in this setting, they're, they're, they're buzzing off it, they're passionate, they're fired up, they're like, yeah, I'm all in. But then realising they've got the summer, then they're back into school. So how do we kind of keep that passion going throughout the coming months and throughout the year in a, in a very different kind of context? So anything that you could say on that would be brilliant. Yeah, I think the first thing is to really treasure what an experience like this is and that God does a real and a genuine work. I think it's a big mistake to say, well, I've, you know, I've done this for five years and I know the kids get super excited and then they wane afterwards and because of that, that experience isn't real. That experience is real. And actually, if we look at Mark 4, when Jesus speaks about whenever the word is preached, there are four kind of responses. The first response is the word's immediately stolen by Satan. And there'll be kids here that come, they don't respond at all. They don't get on a high at all. They actually, they're hardly in the meetings and it doesn't touch them. It just gets robbed from them before they even get it. Then there's going to be others that uh, hear the word, but when trouble comes because of the word... It doesn't bear the fruit that it's meant to. So one of the things that Jesus tells us is that when we have a spiritual high, the mistake we would make is that following Jesus just means that I'm in a perpetual high and trouble will never come. Jesus is my uh, guarantee of a carefree, trouble-free life. And Jesus says, no, when trouble comes because of the word, because of following Jesus, you're going to hit trouble. And amazingly, he's speaking that to the disciples who are all nodding, good point. And there'll be some of you going, good point, Stephen. But before the end of, of Mark 4, they hit the storm and they wake up Jesus and they say, teacher, don't you care? Now, let's think about this. Why did they hit the storm? Did they hit the storm because they're running away from God? Is this a Jonah scenario in Mark 4? Not at all. They, they hit the storm precisely because they're following Jesus. But when they hit the storm, when they hit the difficulty, there are two storms that are going on in their life. The first storm is we're scared of pending death because they say, teacher, don't you care if we die? Experienced fishermen, so this must have been a hectic storm. They are fearful about pending death, but they've got a bigger storm going on. And the biggest storm is a seemingly insincere savior. We thought that meant following you meant a carefree, trouble-free life, and now by following you, we've hit a storm, and when we wake you up, we don't say miracle worker, we say teacher, he's been downgraded, and the thing that they're most concerned about is, don't you care? You're an insincere savior. And so what we need to do is disciple our kids that trouble's coming, and Jesus warned the disciples, and they still didn't get it, and they were adults. So this is awesome. But when you're back at school and you're the only Christian in your standard and you're the freak show, that's not cool. And you've got to have a, a, a paradigm to be able to process that 
And if you don't, it's going to be tough. If adults struggle with that, teenagers are going to struggle with that. Then the next group is the one that grows, they begin to grow, but then the thorns come in. And what's that? The troubles of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things come in and choke out the work of God. So material stuff, worries, my life's full of anxieties, or desire for other things. The Greek, there's epithemia, over-desires. Something else becomes more important. My grades become more important. My social group becomes more important. My sporting endeavors become more important. Good things become ultimate things. Gifts become God. I, I, I reorder my life outside of a New Day experience. And then the fourth category is those who bear fruit uh, 40, 60, 100-fold. Like a really good crop in those days would have been 10-fold. So Jesus is promising if we hang in with him, we're going to bear the superabundant crop. So have a theological category for yourself that whenever the words preach, not just here at New Day, but at youth group, there's going to be a variety of responses. And we need to be aware of that so that when it happens, we're not freaked out and think that the original event wasn't authentic. The original event was authentic, and we actually get an authentic response uh, to all of these different things. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is you can't replicate New Day. Don't try and do it. If you're going to try and do it, you're just going to look ridiculous. You can't do it, okay? This is why we come together. We can do more together than we can apart. We come together. We, we pull our collective giftings and excellences to p- produce something that is beautiful. So you can't replicate it. Next thing that you've got to do is you've got to know your kids and you've got to know how they tick, and you've got to try and do something that is going to connect with their heart. And that requires thoughtful, careful reflection. I'm in a church that's kind of relatively large. We're kind of about 1,300 on a Sunday. But we went through a season where our youth really struggled. And for the older group, what we decided to do was, instead of doing the Friday night thing with the numbers, we just went way smaller. We actually, we went to a a Thursday night life group, which for a church our size was, well, this feels like a real backward step, but it wasn't because actually we needed to connect with with the teenagers where they were. We needed to help them get community and reality. And then out of that, things begin to grow. And then the fourth thing, which I alluded to in, in my message is, ultimately, I think spiritual transformation happens when you begin to serve. Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. So at some point in terms of your discipleship process, you're going to hit a wall if you don't get the kids to actually serve themselves. So for us at Jubilee, the most significant thing that we've seen that has really helped our kids mature and grow is we've sent them on a mission trip where they've uh, run kids club in in another city uh, about uh, 10 hours away and they're getting up at 5.30 in the morning to travel to a place to help set up, uh, to go run the thing and serve the whole day, finish up at 3 o'clock, you know, and, and they do it all again the next day, kind of like what you guys are doing. And you're going to get home from New Day, and it's like I'm absolutely exhausted, I'm shattered, but it's going to be the best week of the summer. Like you're gonna, some of you are going to pay a fortune going somewhere else, and you're not going to be nearly as happy as you are as you're going to be tomorrow when you think about everything that Jesus has done. So let's not rip off our kids by thinking that we're just going to entertain them into happiness. You're not. It malfunctions. God intentionally 
causes selfish people to become unhappy because he knows that the greatest joy is given to those. When we serve others, it's so counterintuitive. When we stop focusing on ourselves and start serving others is when we actually get to the point of greatest joy. And so we've got to try and, with our older teens, it's, it's got to kick back into opportunities to serve. And that's where you've got to engage with your church leaders. There's got to be environments where these kids can actually serve and do something. Uh, otherwise, we, they're just like, feed me, entertain me, and at, at some point that just runs dry. You just can't do it. Stephen, can you just keep expanding on that? So there's a few questions that are coming through just about engaging young people in church so so young people love being part of of the youth work and the youth ministry and and that kind of community but you've you've also put already put out that challenge of of young people being part of the church and local church and and getting passionate about the church and and seeing their role within it and um yeah there's a few questions how do we how do you um, convince young people or the church that they're in that they are the church as much as the adults and to contribute and live as such. So just, yeah. So I think you first got to convince the leaders of your church. If they're not convinced, you're really, uh, you, 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 you're pushing a boulder uphill and eventually it's just going to roll back and squash you. So the reality is, it's actually a contextual issue. Who are we here for? Is the church there for just, to have a genre of music or a kind of package that really feeds mature Christians. If that is the model, then there isn't really going to be space for young people who are immature, new to the faith. It's just like kind of what's going on here. So as a church, there's got to be a mindset of we love immaturity, we love lost people, and we want to create an environment where lost people can become a part of us, they can be discipled, and there's room for that. And we, we think about how we do meetings in, in, in a way that makes it accessible for them. There's got to be those on-ramps. If there is, if, it's like I'm a, I'm a big cricket fan. I love cricket. So, like, honestly, I mean, this, you, you, don't judge me, but, like, I will watch five days of test cricket and be happy as a pig in mud, right? And what I need to do is... Because I love cricket, I want my family to love cricket. But I'm, like, really clever. Because what I did with my kids that are here is I didn't take them to a five-day test. If, like, the first thing they went to was, you're coming to five consecutive days of watching cricket, they would never go to another uh, game of cricket in their life. But, I, you know, I take them to, like, a T20 game, which is really short, and they're fireworks, and, it's, and the guys are wearing colored clothing, and, and, and they're, like... You know, we don't go for the whole game of that. We just go for a little bit. And then they, hey, let's go and, you know, buy them ice creams. And, you know, it's like all a very positive experience. And then next time, hey, do you want to go to cricket? It's like, yeah. And then, like, we go to a slightly longer game. And then, you know, I, you know I've even got my wife now. We went to a whole day of test cricket. And it was, like, very unusual. 18 wickets in a day. Phenomenal game. And my wife kind of confessed. She said that was kind of exciting. And it's like, it's normally never that exciting. But I just said, yeah, babes, it's, it's really always like that, you know, with a really straight face. So it's like, if you're going to say to your young people, you need to go to the five-day test. And then they go to it, and it's just like, really? So there's got to be... There's got to be creativity. There's got to be contextualization within the church in order to win the next generation. Now, I'm in a context where we've got three different services on a Sunday. We've got an evening service, which we can uh, kind of make that more accessible. 
to younger folk, you may not have that kind of flexibility, but it's like critical, right? <laughs> that you, you solve that puzzle piece and that you chat to your leaders, not in an angry way. So like if you, if you get angry and it's like, that's not going to work. It's like, it's like appeal to what they want. Like you want this church to exist as a multi-generational church, right? You don't want it to shut down in 20 years. Cool. Okay, let's work together. And the biblical principle, you can get this from me, say, Stephen Rain said, the biblical principle is that the mature sacrifice for the immature. The model isn't that immature people need to fit in with the mature people. The mature people who get Jesus and want to worship for an hour, they are willing, to, in, in a certain genre of music, they are willing to make a sacrifice to be more excessive to the next generation. That's just the biblical principle. If, if the most mature are inflexible, you're basically stuffed because you'll just bounce the immature. So there's got to be a mindset. We're willing to be flexible in order to help mature people. That, that is the process. We need to invest in it. We need to be creative. We need to have the long haul. We need to understand that sanctification is progressive and slow, and people will regress, and just because that happens doesn't mean it's wrong. We just need to stick at it uh, and uh, be able to put brick on brick. So good. Um, so someone's just asked, when you um, got kind of made that commitment uh, at youth camp, at summer camp, um, uh, what then helped you when you got back in staying within um, church for those first few years and getting plugged in and growing and stuff? So straight off, the, we're, many of us will have young people that have made those kind of commitments. So what, what could we be putting in place for them that will really help them so that they go forward? I would say the two things for me, um, one which is, unfortunately just out of any youth leader's control is there were just a group of people who really loved Jesus and were committed to me that were my peers so when I found Christ I didn't just find him I found a group of people uh, that when I look back on it now are were exceptional they were like straight arrows just as faithful as anything and that's just a gift from God that we wish we had that little formula to produce that. But I think we can build in a way where there is community and friendship. Peer friendships, I think, are absolutely critical. I think I also had a youth leader who understood and loved me. So all of those were kind of very, like kind of from committed Christian families and had it all together, and I didn't. And I knew that he loved me and he had space for me. And I think as a youth leader, you're the one that needs to put your arm around the person that nobody else wants to put their arm around. And if they know, if that kid knows they've got your heart, then they can kind of push through some of the religious, self-righteous silliness. Okay, how would you ensure you give young people opportunities before they're ready alongside ensuring you're not putting them into positions of leadership if their lives don't get um, matched up with the Bible. So that balance of giving them opportunities and wanting to give them those opportunities. I love that point. But then you're putting them in context that are they ready for that and yeah, how do you kind of work that free? Yeah, yeah it does... Rec- I'm, I'm not asking you to be foolish, but I mean, honestly, if I taught through the New Testament I don't really think any of us match up to that honestly so let's like reality check (laughs) so there's always there's a deficit in me my kids are here they'll they'll really affirm that 
There's a deficit in you. So, yes, we're pursuing maturity, but we, uh, we're not where we're meant to be. The opportunities that you need to give are opportunities where you coach and there is a safety net, so we're not throwing people out irresponsibly. We want to give them opportunity and then uh, coach them and help them. If there's an inconsistency ar around it, it's not... See, this is the challenge. It's not get all of that sorted out so that, we can, so that you can make a meaningful contribution. Because then what you're saying is my obedience is so that I get the opportunity. The obedience needs to come because Jesus is worthy. Whether it's seen or unseen. I want to be living for him. So you've always got to be doing that, that heart work, applying the gospel to the kid's life. Why are they behaving in the way that they're behaving? Looking for the sin beneath the sin. So the kid could be going out and getting drunk. Okay, so that's not good. Don't get drunk. But why, is, why are they getting drunk? And the, the drunkenness is a shoot, not a root. Pull up the root, the, the shoot of drunkenness, and look what's feeding that kind of behavior. Apply the gospel to that and be patient with them. So I'm not, you know, there are, there are behaviors which do disqualify you. It's just like, sorry, you're not yet ready. Uh, but we're never, we're never going to be perfect this side of heaven. And sometimes the serving, the actual purpose, the mission, <laughs> helps catalyze them to live the way that they, that they should. Sorry. Okay, we've got quite a few questions coming through. Uh, okay, so one um, said... How would you support a young person that's passionate about sharing their faith and they go into their school and they, they, they talk about Jesus and share their faith, but then they get bullied and they're kind of having to walk through that thing of wanting to live it out and wanting to talk about um, the gospel and to bring that into their context. But then you know and you care for them and you, you, you love them and, and they get so much grief because of, because of that. Yeah, so I think the scriptures help us with this. There is a context where you shake the dust off your feet and move on. So it's not, um, I'm just going to communicate the gospel irrespective of how damaging the environment becomes. The, the context can become too damaging that it's unwise to communicate the gospel. You've tried it, but they're resistant, and then they whether it's emotionally or physically or doing things that are um, detrimental to the young people. So I don't, I, don't think, um, I don't think that's wise to do. I think we can try and equip folk in terms of ask, asking questions or, in, or trying to create other environments where those kind of kids come. So to say, well, hey... I'm glad that you've got these kind of questions and you think it's really ridiculous. Why don't you give up eight evenings and we're actually doing a youth alpha and then you can, you can pump all your questions and try and disprove it. And we, we, we really like people who disagree with the claims of, of, of Jesus, but, but really check it out. Don't just bat it off. So as a youth leader, you can think about uh, opportunities um, for doing that. You can look at what is their approach to evangelism. So sometimes... They are being idiots in the way that they're doing that, and uh, you can just help coach them to uh, to do it in in in, in a better way. But I, I I certainly wouldn't say to our kids you've got to evangelize at all cost. You know I think there is a 
if people don't want to hear, they don't want to hear, and then you've actually got to, you kind of got to move on. There are some more questions that are coming through, but I think we'll text those out. I'd love it if, um, Stephen, if you just if you pray for us um, before we go. Just a couple of resources. Obviously, many of you will use um, Youth Alpha, um, and uh, that is just a great resource for kind of explaining the gospel. And obviously, we've been talking a lot about Alpha and and how we can kind of use that. And obviously, you can get all the talks on uh, on YouTube. Uh, there's another course which has been put together called Hope Revolution, um, and it's um, made by uh, youth leaders that have got young people kind of hosting um, a talk very similar to kind of Alpha um, with less of a budget, but it, it basically goes through the whole um, getting young people to share their faith and to live out their faith and to um, to explain their faith and, and all of that. So that's something that we're starting with our young people in September. And uh, it's a free resource um, you, that you can get. So if you Google Hope Revolution um, and you want something slightly different to Alpha, then um, then that's a kind of course that takes your young people through on a on sharing sharing the gospel and um, and there's discussion work and, and group work and stuff um, with that. Stephen, if you would pray for us, why don't we stand? Just before I pray, just one other thing that I'd encourage you to do that I really see God doing amongst our young people uh, at this time is that as culture is becoming more and more resistant to the Christian message. God isn't just raising up young people in, uh, to fulfill Christian church leadership positions. He's actually raising up people to fulfill uh, positions uh, within society. And I was enormously encouraged last night how the folk from Toppy's church were praying, God, would you raise up politicians and doctors and that to fulfill these places in the public square. It's interesting to me just over the last couple of years just within the UK just to notice kids from our youth groups, you know, this, the one lady who did the baking thing, you know, she went well, and then this guy now with the voice. It's just like as we invest in our kids, God's going to just just going to anoint some folk to start being salt and light uh, within the culture. And I just encourage you to speak about that. We, we um, you know, we've looked at stuff like Psalm 127, which talks about our kids contending in the public square, in the very place uh, which was the judicial, uh, commercial, economic hub of a place. Right there, God wants our kids contending uh, for the gospel. And we need to cast a vision for that, not simply a vision for church leadership, but a vision for cultural engagement that God's hand's going to be upon uh, this next generation uh, to be able to do that. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you said in your word that one generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty works. They will tell of your awesome deeds. And Lord, we pray for the churches represented here. Lord, we pray for the gospel miracle of a multi-generational community where young and old personally commend your works to each other as a result of first-hand experiences themselves. Lord, we want to thank you for New Day. Lord, we want to thank you for all the gospel seed and work that has gone out this week. We want to treasure every single seed. And we want to ask you, Lord, that in the youth groups represented here on this camp, that we would see a harvest 30, 60, 100 fold. That what has been sown wouldn't be stolen by Satan, wouldn't be choked out by the thorns and the thistles and the weeds, 
but that would reproduce. Lord, I pray for youth leaders here who really want to see lost in fruit in the life of their kids. I pray that you would give them gospel strategies and discipleship strategies uh, to be able to facilitate that. Lord, we want to acknowledge that we can't bring anybody to maturity ourselves. That is a work of you, but we want to be in step with you, Holy Spirit, and we want to be flexible uh, and uh, fleet-footed to be able to respond to you. And Lord, I pray for church leaderships to get a vision for a multi-generational church and to be flexible and be willing to change uh, for the sake of the future. Lord, I really do ask you for that in Jesus' name. And then I want to pray for every leader here, Lord, and I want to pray. Do you just want to lift up your hands just next to yourself? Lord, I want to pray that you would fill them with the Holy Spirit. You said to the people that you discipled for three years that they were to wait in the city until they were clothed with power from on high. And I pray for a clothing of power. I want to pray for an infilling of the Holy Spirit for the men and women here to do the work of ministry that you've called them to. I pray that you would fill them, you would empower them, you would anoint them by your Spirit to do your mandate and mission and method to your glory. I pray that you would fill them to overflowing. Lord, I pray for every leader here. Lord, I pray that they would just hear the tender whisper of your well done, my good and faithful servant, as they've given out this week, that they've expended themselves on behalf of others. Lord, I pray that they would hear your encouragement. And I pray that you would fill them and empower them by your spirit to do the work that you've called them to. Ask this in your name. And for your glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.